Hey everyone, this is James, the showrunner at Self Evident, and I'm just stopping by to say if you haven't filled out our annual listener survey yet, it would be a huge help if you could do that before starting today's episode by going to selfevidentshow.com slash participate. The survey's anonymous, it takes just a few minutes, and it really helps our team understand where you're coming from, what we can do for you, and how to move the whole show forward. Also, if you take the survey, you have a chance to win a $25 gift card to an Asian American-owned business that we're fans of. So Take the survey at selfevidentshow.com slash participate. We will also leave a link to it in the show notes. And thanks for listening. She said, we've booked you a hotel. So the car will take you to hotel. Go there. Uh, I made some food. Eat some food. Go to the hotel. Take a shower. And then you can go to the hospital. I said, no, I need to go to the hospital now. She said, no, no, no. I made some food for you. The food will get cold. That's Tanmai Shaker, an Indian-American filmmaker based in Brooklyn. In mid-August of 2020, he was in the backseat of a taxi that his aunt had hired to pick him up from the airport in Ranchi, in northeast India. Both of his parents were hospitalized with COVID, and he was desperate to see them and do something to help them. But after almost a full day of flying from New York and overcoming pandemic restrictions, Tanmai found himself pushing against an unforeseen obstacle, the rapidly cooling food his aunt and uncle expected him to eat. My uncle calls me. He said, I've told the driver to go to the hotel. He's like, the food is waiting for you. The food will get cold. I was like, what's up with this food? I mean, it's like, I need to see whether my father is alive. (laughs) And I told the driver, I was like, go to the hospital. He said, no, 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 sir, sir, take you to the hotel. The stakes could not be higher. And still they're like, no, hot food is more important. I was like, what What if I'm eating hot food and then my father passes away? Like, that's the last thing I remember that when my father passed away, I was eating like hot food. I, I know it was just like I was just going crazy and then I, I at least I took the driver's phone I called the doctor the doctor said that he's still not very good but you know it's not life-threatening right now mm-hmm. I was like okay fine and he said I'm free at 2 p.m. so come come meet me at the hospital at 2 p.m. Okay. Okay. okay now I can go to the hotel and now I can take a shower and I can eat hot food this is self-evident where we tell Asian America stories to go beyond being seen It's been two years since the COVID pandemic upended so many parts of our lives. And this month, we've again been reminded how isolating it can be to take care of the people we love. So today, we're sharing two stories of people becoming caregivers. One of those stories is Tanmai's frantic journey back to Northeast India to take care of his parents. The other follows a Micronesian mom in Midwestern America who's always been the primary caregiver for her son, who has cerebral palsy. Both were affected by COVID, and both have used every resource available to keep their family healthy. And these stories raise a lot of questions about who gets those resources, who gets to be healthy in systems that leave so many people with family as their only lifeline. Before the pandemic, Tanmai actually spent years keeping his distance from the family. He grew up in the North Indian city of Kanpur. And like his dad, Tanmai came to the U.S. as a young man looking for opportunity. But as immigrants, they were on very different paths. Tanmai's dad was actually already married when he came to the States for grad school. And he didn't want to stick around. Both him and his mother, for both of them, like family was the most important thing in the world. So they were both very clear that they didn't want to live in the U.S., even though my dad had like, you know, job options in Silicon Valley. So he came back to India to become a professor in a university. Tanmai, on the other hand, moved his entire life to New York City after going to school in India. 
He called himself Tonmai 2.0 and embraced his new life as a hustling indie filmmaker, making it on his own in New York City. For him, the whole point of immigrating was to break away from the rest of the family, especially his dad. So I also had a very complicated relationship with my father. He was a classic, at least Indian father archetype. Like, you know, his emotional range wasn't very big. And there's always like a hierarchy in Indian families. So, you know, he's always like my father and I have to listen to him. And I wasn't the type who pushed back. Mm -hmm. And then I would feel resentful. And growing up in a house that was constantly crowded with family members and family friends got Tanmay thinking of a life where nobody would be looking over his shoulder. It's like a very classic, like middle-class Indian family where everybody's very overbearing and everybody's like very involved in what everybody else is doing. So it was just, it was a lot. Like my grandmother is the sort of person who would be like, oh, so Tanmay, you woke up at 10 in the morning and it's 9 p.m. <laughs> right now. And in the last 13 hours, I saw you study for only two hours. And then you were out in the evening for four hours. Like, what were you doing the rest of the day? You know, <laughs> that's how my grandmother is. Like, she was a keeper of time. And so, <laughs> anyway, I think by the time I graduated, I was just like ready to like run away. And so I think my living in the U.S. was, I just felt so happy. I was like, this is great. You know, I can be out till 4 a.m. And nobody's keeping a track of like what I'm doing. So I think I, I, think I just felt very <laughs> free. And I was, yeah, I mm. was, I was like, this is great. I think I can live here forever. Tanmay's dad, Dr. Rajiv Shekhar, is a director at IIT Dunbad, or the Indian Institute of Technology in Dunbad. After the pandemic started, the university put in really strict lockdown rules, and Tanmay's dad felt pretty safe. But then, in mid-August of 2020, he started showing serious COVID symptoms. My father had been sick, like he had very high fever. And it had been like four or five days. Things got so bad that the local doctor gave him a CT scan and said he needed to transfer to a hospital with ventilators. But the nearest hospital with ventilators was a five-hour drive away. I saw this WhatsApp video. It was a video that my father recorded in the ambulance as he was being taken away. My first trip in an ambulance, lying strapped to my seat with an oxygen in place. He recorded this one minute video talking about like how great he is and how technology has become amazing. They only use needles now to insert the plastic tube and then they withdraw the needle. Just seeing him within an oxygen mask and in an ambulance was like, it made me feel terrible. But like his one minute long video where he kept saying that he was fine. He must be looking very unsettling. But actually, I'm very comfortable, so I'm fine, I'll be back soon, don't worry at all. It was also like he'd become delusional and he had lost his mind. Oh. I was crying and then I called my sister and she was like, what happened? And then I said, did you just see WhatsApp? Did you see? And then she opened her WhatsApp and then she saw it and then both of us were like crying. By that time, it was 4 a.m. in New York. Tanmay started thinking about how he could get to India to help out, but his family members were all saying the same thing. It just feels like there's nothing you can do, so you should probably just stay there. So what convinced you to finally go then? My mother had created a WhatsApp thread just between me, her, and my sister, Tushita. And she had, she called this WhatsApp thread, My Heartbeats. So I woke up to see this new WhatsApp thread. It was called My Heartbeats. 
And, and I think, I think this is when my mother had started to panic because now uh, when they had go, uh, when the doctor had told my father to go to the hospital, you know, the COVID test still hadn't come back, but now he had tested positive for COVID mm -hmm. and like his situation was deteriorating by the hour. And she had also turned uh, positive and her oxygen levels were also going down and she also had started having a fever. My mother usually tries to be very calm. Uh -huh. But when she sent this, like my heartbeats, like it was almost, it felt like, yeah, that's when I was like, I think this is bad and I have to go. Tanmay had actually caught COVID himself in March of 2020. He was hoping he still had some level of immunity from that. Also, he'd been pretty isolated at a relative's house for a few weeks. So he took the required COVID test for travel, then went to the airport to try to get to New Delhi. But at the time, India was closed to most international travel, and Tanmay didn't have an Indian passport anymore. So at first, the airline didn't want to let him board the plane, knowing he probably wouldn't be allowed into the country. Tanmay went back and forth with them, saying that he just had to get to his dad. I just, I I'd started crying and they, I just told them that, just let me go. If they don't let me in the in immigration in India, then, you know, I'll just come back, you know, I'll just come back. Stubbornness paid off and Tanmay got on the plane. Then he spent the next 15 or so hours turning over every possibility in his head. What would happen to his father? Would he have to move back to India to take care of his family? Could he even do that? He felt like he could barely take care of himself. But once Tanmay paid for the plane Wi-Fi and started calling up extended family members in India, he realized he wasn't doing this on his own. The one thing which I know about India is that connections go very, 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 very far. I just started calling my cousins. I said, oh, do we know somebody who works in immigrations and customs? I also got in touch with like another uncle, one of my mother's cousins. I called him up. I said, my father's not really well. And I don't know what the rules are, but I really, really need to enter. He said, don't worry, Tanmay. You will be able to enter. Honestly, the, the family and friends network in India is pretty awesome. It's like when you say that there's something with your family, like everybody rallies together. When Tanmay got off the plane, he was very quickly put into a line for people without the right paperwork. He was about to be put in a hotel for two weeks of quarantine, or sent right back to the U.S. On his phone, he was frantically texting a man his uncle had told him to contact. If you aren't here in the next five minutes, then I'll be shipped somewhere and then there is no coming back. Mm -hmm. So this guy, he came and finally he extracted me from that line. He said something, something, something. I say that he was a, he's a miracle worker, but he was just, you know, just a guy. Tanmay finally made it to the right checkpoint and presented his negative COVID test. And it, that's it. Finally, I've made it. It's in. That's it. I'm in India right now. Tanmay had one more flight from New Delhi to Ranchi, where his parents were hospitalized. He made it to Ranchi, but before he could get to the hospital, of course, there was the showdown over hot food with his aunt and uncle. Your aunt made it with her hands. It'll get cold. When Tanmay, fed and showered, got to the hospital that afternoon, the doctor said his dad had only 5% of his lung capacity left, with only a 5 or 10% chance of survival. He'd been receiving oxygen and had been put on a ventilator. The only other thing to try was something called convalescent plasma therapy, 
That's a transfusion of plasma from a person with a matching blood type who recently had COVID and had a strong antibody response. So Tanmai started looking for donors who met the requirements. And for that, it was just like an insane outreach effort. Facebook and Twitter, my cousins and my sister, older relatives put out ads on the local newspaper and road radio. And my father's university, they had like a grassroots, like on the ground approach where they were just like knocking on doors. Like within three hours, like a thousand people in the world have my phone number now. And I am just inundated with calls and texts. Whenever celebs are interviewed, like, oh, what was the moment when you decided that you wanted to be a tennis player? Or what, what was the moment when you decided to be a fine artist? And they always have a story. They have a story, oh, you know, when I was seven years old and I saw this film and it really inspired me and it changed my world. I've taken a lot of extreme decisions, like I've moved countries, I've started a new career, like I switched from economics to filmmaking. It was always like a series of events. But this afternoon was definitely like one moment when I think I'm getting texts from all these people, from people who are older than me and defying the hierarchy which exists in our family. It's like my uncles and aunts and even like one of my grandmother's sister is calling me and they're asking me, how can they help? And that afternoon I felt like, okay, I am the person in charge of my family. It's not my father. It's not my mother. It's not even my mother's sister or my father's brother. It's me. Like, I am the person in charge of my family. Throughout it all, Tanmai was going back and forth between the private hospital where his dad was and a public hospital where the blood bank was located, checking for donations. His dad, as well-known director for a major university, was getting the best possible care. But when Tanmai showed up to the blood bank, he realized that conditions in the public hospital were much, much worse. There's thousands of people. Mm -hmm. And at night, what happens is that every inch of floor space is covered by people who are sleeping on the ground. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that's when you kind of come to terms with like the poverty in India. It's just because it was a public hospital, it catered to, you know, people who are struggling more in life financially, people who are poor mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. It was just, yeah, that hospital, it's, it just smells of death. It's literally like death and despair. I kept thinking about it myself. Like if, I, if somebody had asked me to donate blood plasma, like would I donate it to them? Because in the blood bank, you know, where people are supposed to donate plasma, they're sitting on this chair which has a white sheet on it, but this sheet has blood stains on it. Oh. And the needle which uh, they're plugging you onto a, a machine and one end of the machine is a needle which goes into your arm and the needle is connected through a tube to the machine and the tube is always on the ground. So they just pick something off the ground and then they just put it into somebody's arm. That was, <laughs> that was really, really hard because I kept thinking if somebody, I'm asking all these people to donate plasma to save my father's life. But if somebody asked me to donate plasma right now in that moment, even the person who's donated plasma for my father, if that person asks me to donate plasma for somebody else in their family, I wasn't sure if I could do it because I was like, this is, mm. you'll get sick, you know? Right. I mean, sick is the least, like you could die. At the same time, Tanmai was realizing that almost all the people who had answered his call for donations to save his father, people potentially risking their own health, were from a lower class. The wealthier people he had asked weren't showing up. It was a sobering reality that stuck with Tanmai when he finally headed back to his dad with the plasma he needed. He was exhausted. 
And that's when my phone rings and I see a call from my father. And this is the first time that I'm seeing a call from him once I've landed from India. And I haven't heard anything from him, no texts, no calls. Oh, yeah. So I picked up the phone and this is like, yeah, I think this is a conversation which I'll probably never, ever, ever, ever forget. I heard like some wind. Pss, 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 pss. I was in the car, the window was open. And I thought it was the wind, so I rolled up the window, but I'm still hearing this wind. And I think it's like some bad connection, all this. Pss, 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 pss. It takes me a really long time to figure out that that's actually my father's voice. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Because his, his lungs have gotten so bad that he can't, he can't speak. There's no words. Like his lungs don't have the power to say words. Mm -hmm. And so he thinks that he's speaking. I don't know what he knows about his condition, but he's probably trying to speak, but all that is coming out is wind. And I, I was just like, Papa, you don't have to say anything. I'm coming with blood plasma. I found something. The doctors will put it into you. You're going to feel better. In a few days, you're going to be out of the hospital. It's all going to be fine. It's fine. I'm here. I'm around. Don't worry. Ultimately, through his outreach, Tanmai's parents both received donated plasma and recovered enough to be discharged. It's hard to say how much the plasma cured his dad compared with all the other life-saving treatments. The doctor told Tanmai his father's recovery was a miracle. But the recovery was really just beginning. So, yeah, so they were in the hospital for more than a month. And on September 17th, we are back in Ranchi now. And now begins the long-term healing process. Now it's like, you know, the life-threatening stuff is over. Mm -hmm the thing because of which we were panicking and blood and plasma and maybe we lose our life. And then began this like slow recovery process. Tanmai stayed to help. He would measure out and distribute medication, pay close attention to both parents' healing, and help out wherever else needed. Over the next three months, Tanmai spent more time with his parents than he ever had in the past few years, especially with his dad. He remembered a moment from before the pandemic that now felt like it came from a totally different life. So just before the pandemic in January 2020, I had an endoscopy and it's an anesthesia thing. So it's like when you go to the hospital, uh, they'll only check you out if you have somebody to accompany you. And um, my really good friend Fidel, who I usually rely on, was out of town. So I had asked the doctor, like, you know, if I wait at the hospital long enough, can I just check myself out? My, can I just go out by myself if I don't have anybody? And the doctor said, yeah, that's fine. It'll be fine. And so I had felt kind of proud. I was like, you know, I'm so independent. I can, I can have a procedure and I have anesthesia and I can walk out by myself. I don't need anybody. But when this thing with my father happened, I mean, I was just like so blown away because like he's helped so many people. Like in our house, when we were growing up, his parents were not well. He uh, took them in. My mother's nephews wanted to live with us. So he took them in. There was always a rotating cast of people from our ancestral village who had moved to the city looking for jobs. And so like, you know, in our three bedroom, small three bedroom house, we had like 14 to 16 people living, you know, at different points of time. And just he had helped so many, like his students, his university students. He had helped so many people that when he was in the hospital, like over the next few weeks, thousands of people called me, thousands of people called me, friends, students, parents of students, alumni checking in on him like regularly, how's he doing now? I think it was like an eye opener. I was like, what am I doing? I grew up in India. You know, I'm like trying to make my life in a new country where I have my independence. Nobody's micromanaging me. 
but if something happens to me i just go to the hospital by myself and i have to check myself out whereas with my father like it's like a whole army of people everybody's there for you so i stood in that thought forever i was like the way i'm living my life now is not sustainable and i was like i think i want to make some lifestyle changes tanmay and his dad started rebuilding their relationship the experience of stepping up to take care of his family the feeling of their community backing him up in a crisis the reality check of seeing the risks that blood donors from a lower class were taking all that prompted tanmay to rethink his independent life in america to rethink tanmay 2.0 especially compared to his dad's more interconnected life in India. My mother is a very spiritual person. She always says that things happen to people because there are lessons that people need to learn. And from my own personal selfish perspective, like this needed to happen so that I learned certain lessons mm-hmm. so that this thing that I was doing of like running away from my family, I stopped doing that. And I know that You know, your family lived in the U.S. for a little while before moving back to India. Yeah. Do Do you think you understand now a little bit more why your dad chose to live in in Dunbar instead of staying in the U.S.? I think so. I think so. I I actually that's one of the things I spoke to him a lot because even in his time, a lot of like you know, a lot of his close friends were other people from India. You know, in the university in California in Berkeley, and he said that. so many of them talked about maybe moving back to india but nobody did all of his friends except for him they eventually settled in the us and he was the only one in his friend group who came back i feel like i'm in the same stage of life myself you know i've spent a few years in the us i've been building a life in the us so i feel like i'm in the same situation as in my father he definitely took a harder decision in terms of like you know material comforts in terms of like money and career like he could have gone much further but he doesn't have any regrets and i have a feeling that that's where i'm also headed today tanmay is more in touch with his family than ever and while he's still pursuing his dream life as a filmmaker he's been spending a lot more time in india and finding out what it's like to make his family a bigger part of his life hey there i'm john ray sorapio And I'm Sylvia Pong. We're the hosts of At the Moment, an Asian American news podcast. Every other Tuesday, John Ray and I tackle the everyday politics that shape Asian American communities. At the Moment is produced by AZ Media, an independent Asian American news media organization founded by millennial Asian American journalists and storytellers. You can find our podcast at www.azi.media. Or look up at the moment Asian American news on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Check us out and see you on Tuesday. This is self-evident. I'm Kathy Irway. We heard from Tanmay about how his dad's community, coworkers, family, friends, people he'd helped out over decades. all came together to help Tanmay get to India and make sure his family could survive COVID. Seeing those relationships and taking care of his parents changed the dynamic between Tanmay and his dad. Being a caregiver can change so much of a person's life, but especially when your support network doesn't have a lot of resources to offer. To hear how that can feel, I'm passing the mic to Angela Edward, a social worker from Michigan who also hosts her own podcast. 
for Micronesians by Micronesians. Angela reached out to us to talk about her aunt Delma and Delma's son, Delvin, who has cerebral palsy. The way Micronesians in the U.S. qualify or don't qualify for health insurance can be really complicated. In 1996, the right to apply for programs like Medicaid and SNAP, which were available to a lot of Micronesians who had moved to the U.S., was actually taken away by the federal government as part of so-called welfare reform legislation. Then in 2020, part of a COVID relief package gave Medicaid back to these communities. But even though they're technically now eligible, getting help isn't easy. Here's Angela. In October 2021, I took a trip to a small town in southwest Missouri for my dad's 60th birthday. There's a whole community of Micronesian folks who've settled in the four-state area, including a lot of my extended family. Having this chance to gather was a really big deal, because ever since the pandemic started, we've all been reeling from COVID. That was one of the first things I talked about with my Aunt Delma when we were catching up. How her friends and neighbors were coping, and who we've had to say goodbye to. Aunt Aline's brother just passed yeah. away after the funeral. Same. That's uh, five oh my so gosh. far. But there's uh, more Pompeians that passed away with COVID, too. Delma caught COVID during the summer of 2021. She was in the hospital for two weeks. And when I saw her, she was still having trouble with her daily routine. And that was a real problem. Because for the past three decades, Delma's daily routine has been taking care of her son, Delvin. Delvin has cerebral palsy. It's a neurological condition that impairs the body's ability to move. Since he was born... Delvin's diagnosis has stopped him from doing things the rest of us take for granted, like walking, talking, eating, and showering. Thankfully, when Delma was hospitalized with COVID, her family stepped up to help out. But she's taken a long time to recover from the infection, and now it's much harder to take care of Delvin the way she used to. I think the COVID affected a lot of people with their, you know, like energy and stuff. It makes you weak. (laughs) The whole experience made her stop and recognize that she can't keep going like this. At the time that I'm sharing this story, Delma is 47 years old and Delvin is 30. He's an adult, you know. I'm not that old. I don't think I am, but (laughs) one of these days, you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to where I cannot pick him up anymore, so... I'll need more help. Every morning, Delma runs the faucet in the bathroom of their two-bedroom apartment. One of the effects of Delvin's condition is that his teeth are really sensitive. So she grabs a washcloth, squeezes a little toothpaste onto it, and starts rubbing it gently onto his teeth. So I go uh, rub it on his teeth because it bleeds every time I uh, walk. The whole process takes about 15 minutes. It's not one of Delvin's favorite things. He don't like the toothpaste. Whenever he sits up in a pressure, he spit it out most of the time. (laughs) With a lot of these daily tasks Delma does for Delvin, there's always a little risk that something might go wrong and end up hurting him. Like here in the bathroom, she's making sure his teeth get cleaned but also making sure he doesn't accidentally inhale the toothpaste foam and choke. Sometimes it's hard for him to spit it, so 
what they do is uh, they try to swallow it. So it's better with the washcloth. Dalma moved to Missouri from her home island of Bombay in Micronesia when she was 24, specifically to make a better life for Delvin. She came to be a nursing aide, thinking she'd make more money and learn how to better take care of Delvin in the future. But her employer required her to live in a corporate apartment, sharing three bedrooms with five other workers. Then they garnished all of their wages to pay the rent, which she thought was too high. So Delma quit. She started working in restaurants, then on the assembly line for furniture companies. When she made the decision to move to the U.S., Delma says she was also thinking about physical therapy and different kinds of furniture and assisted living tools in the States. She thought that relocating would help her get access to the kind of healthcare technology that wasn't available in Bombay. But that's not what happened. (laughs) Because when I first brought him over, my insurance wasn't enough to cover for him to get a chair. So I tried to get help and I thought I was going to get Medicaid to at least help get his chair. And that didn't work. When I asked Elf for Delvin and they said no, they said he's not eligible because he's an Islander. When Delma and Delvin moved to Missouri, they were ineligible for Medicaid because Micronesian migrants were disqualified from that program in 1996. Delma's mom, who used to watch Delvin at home, passed away in 2005. So Delma had to stop working full time. And over the past 23 years in America, Delma's gotten stuck in a catch-22 that a lot of Americans live with. She thought she could earn more money, get health insurance, and take better care of her family. But because she has to take care of her family, she can't hold a job to earn more money or pay for health insurance. So Delma, her fiancé Yos, and their Micronesian community are Delvin's healthcare system. And she's his full-time caregiver. Every day, she gives Delvin a bath, using a washcloth to rub soapy water onto his body. Whenever he takes a bath, he got so excited that he'll want to jump. (laughs) She puts on his diapers and changes them two to four times a day. She cooks all his meals and feeds him by hand. When it comes to Delvin, he loves eating. He's not picky with anything. Because they can't afford the right kind of wheelchairs or transfer chairs, Delvin spends most of his day inside. Usually, he's laying on an island mat on the floor, watching TV. And since he can't move around, Delma checks in every day to see where he's sore or cramped and massages his muscles. It's hard, but I ask him from his toe up to his head to find out if there's something wrong with him. If he said he has a headache, so I massage his temple, like, you know, his forehead and stuff. Sometimes I give massage on his feet because his leg is stiff. Delvin's never been able to communicate with words the way Delma and I can. And he's not neurotypical, so he can't problem solve on his own. He isn't able to maintain a daily schedule, pay for bills, or make life plans without Delma. Watching Delvin and Delma communicate is beautiful, though. She's his mother. Even if he can't say words, she can tell when he's hurting, happy, sad, excited, or bored. She knows what his favorite TV shows are. 
who his favorite people are and knows his sense of humor. Delvin is, uh, sometimes you can say he's silly. <laughs> my dad, he's from a different island back home, and my mom is from a different island. So they have different language, like dialects. He laughs when you speak my mom's language. He thinks it's funny, and it makes me laugh a lot. Because when he laughs, you'll have to laugh too. (laughs) Delma's entire life would change if she could get public health benefits. But she's tried three times and told us that every single time she was rejected because she's not a citizen. When I asked her if she's tried to apply for citizenship, she turned around and asked me, Can we? That's the question. Can, Can we Islanders become citizens? Because of all the experiences she's had, being rejected by the healthcare system, watching family members threatened with deportation, and feeling confused by all the paperwork she gets asked for by government officials, Delma's question is pretty reasonable. There is a process for Islanders like her to become naturalized or get the same benefits as a U.S. citizen, but I don't think she's ever seen it work in reality. Delma moved her whole life here to make new opportunities, but she understands that islanders in the States are at the mercy of the American government. Without the care that, you know, they're rejecting for my son, you cannot do anything without that kind of help. You know, we want to go somewhere. We want to go have fun, but we cannot because we don't have the right chair to take him in and I like Missouri. It's just that if you don't have money, then it's hard. You know, like sometimes I ask this question, why do I come over? What I see in the future is maybe we should go back home. (laughs) Yeah, just go back home. But moving back home wouldn't necessarily make life easier. Some living costs would be lower and some ways of life would be more familiar, more comfortable. But after Dalma's family moved to the States, their house fell apart, literally, so they'd have to buy a new house. And taking care of Delvin without specialized equipment and facilities would be just as hard on the island. So Dalma's best bet is to keep pushing for benefits in the States as a Micronesian American. And right now she has the first chance she's ever had at getting public health care. In December 2020, the federal government passed legislation that made Micronesians eligible for Medicaid. Delma applied, but she missed the phone calls and mail notices from the caseworker who was reviewing her application, so she still doesn't have health insurance. She's still really wary of the process, and every time Delma's rejected, she feels more defeated. When people need help, they should ask for it, but... Asking for help, it hurts your bride. It's hard to do. I think it's the way I'm raised. And sometimes, you know, when I ask for help, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, if you ask, rejection is not a good thing. But a bigger reason Dalma doesn't ask for help is that she's always afraid of what would happen if she got the government involved. She started feeling this way in 2007 when two of her younger relatives were separated from their parents. What happened was that one of those kids got into some trouble at school. That led to the school calling Child Protective Services who interviewed the parents and removed the kids from their home. 
Delma ended up working with the case manager while the kids were in foster care, but she never got them out of the system. And this experience still comes up when Delma thinks about accepting help from a government program. They stay in the foster care. That time was hard for me. Every time I think about them, I cry. I asked the, quote, caseworker, why is it that when we ask for help from you guys, and then you guys rejected us, but then you guys have the right to take away our kids, you know? I just don't understand that. Being from this family, I know what it's like to be Micronesian. And being a social worker, I understand what's supposed to be ethically appropriate for my job. But social work ethics aren't always looked at through the right cultural lens. The work to understand where your clients are coming from isn't always there. And it's so easy for Micronesian people to fall through the gaps. It's kind of like a nightmare to me. Sometimes I want to try a lot, way, way, way more than like what I'm doing. But then it scares me because with Delvin, when people come visit and they leave, he wants to go with them. And then he sometimes bit himself. Like there's like scars here on his arm where he, he, he got mad and then he bit. Like he's getting where... <laughs> Wiping my tears. You made me sad. I'm sorry. It's okay. Okay, should we rest for a little? Yeah, we can take a second. <laughs> it's okay. That whole situation makes me sad. We all have to go to the hospital. I'm trying to be strong too, because every time I think about this and I uh, talk about it, I cry. But. I am trying to be strong today. (laughs) (laughs) Some people look at this situation and ask, why can't my aunt become a citizen? Why hasn't she already registered for the benefits she's entitled to? But my question is, how can we invite someone to our country to work in the healthcare system, but not give them any health insurance? How can we look at a parent who's trying to take care of someone with a chronic disability and refuse to help them at all because they were born in the wrong place? We are just starting to change that now by giving Medicaid back to Micronesians. But we can do a lot more for people like Delma to help them take care of their families. Is there even a word that translates for caregiver? In Micronesia, if caregiving is a word, I don't think there's a word for caregiver back home because we take care of our elderlies until they passed. But nowadays that most of the islanders are here, I can see that some of them are doing the caregiver thing. Giving care is everything in this family. The times that Dalma and Delvin enjoy most are just everyday moments. Okay, maybe not the toothbrushing, but you know, Watching movies, listening to music, the simple things they share with each other, make them happy. Halfway through the afternoon, Delma gets on a video call with her sister-in-law, Connie. Are you excited already? Yeah. He's been saying Connie's name. Connie. Funny. (laughs) How you doing? 
Ah, pues hay que ir a la hora de mamela porque pepe, porque que me me. I love my Aunt Delma and my cousin Delvin. They're special to me. But what they go through, living a life that's closed off from the system they live in, feels like the reality for a lot of Micronesian Americans. With a little help from me, Delma is going to get her newest Medicaid application done and hopefully, finally get some of that help she was hoping to find 23 years ago. Before I leave Delma's apartment, I ask her what she thinks is her favorite part of being a mom. Best part of it is that God bless you with your kids. You know, I was just in high school when I had Delvin, so it was hard, but I never regret having him. It's a blessing to me. Yeah, that's our mom's thing, you know. Sometimes we get tired, but... We're happy every time we do stuff for our kids to make them happy and and healthy. We being there for them all the time. Thanks so much to Delma, Delvin, and Tanmai for sharing their stories with us. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend. And write us a five-star review for Self-Evident on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. This episode was produced by James Boo, Emily Wu Pearson, and Angela Edward. We were edited by Julia Shu, and we were fact-checked by Tiffany Bowie and Harsha Nahata. Angela's podcast, For Micronesians by Micronesians, covers more topics affecting Micronesians and other Pacific Islanders, including adoption, fat phobia, and mental health. We're leaving a link so you can check it out. Self-Evident is a studio-to-be production. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda. This episode was made with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creator Program. And of course, our listener community. I'm Kathy Irway. I hope you'll keep in touch. Remember to take care of yourself and take care of each other.